Hello everyone and welcome back to Another Mother, a parenting podcast by My Spring Harvest with me, Emma Borquay. I am a mum of two little ones. I've got Ezra who is three and Hallie who was born at the end of 2022. And since becoming a family of four, I realised... I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. I need advice. So I am speaking to some of the best people that I know to help me on this journey, give me some of their wisdom um, and avoid me having to filter through all of the array of opinions that are out there on the internet forums and the mummy blogs and all of that stuff. So I'm speaking to the people that I trust that are further ahead on the journey than me or maybe at the same place as me on the journey and we can share our stories and our laughs. But yes, this is a podcast for people who have got questions like me. I've got so, so, so many questions. And so far, we have had incredible conversations and you guys have been absolutely loving it. So I just wanted to remind you, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast or clicked follow or whatever it is that you have to click, please do that. It really helps us in getting this podcast out to more people. So please do share it with other parents that you know, if you've been enjoying it or just friends of yours that you know would like it. And that will really help us to spread the word. I have got an incredible conversation lined up for you today with somebody called Loretta Andrews. She is a voice that many people would have heard before as she used to be a radio broadcaster for many years. She's also a podcaster, a music manager, a business owner, an author, and she is a mum to her teen boy, Rue. That is a lot of things. It makes my head spin a little bit. Um, I have known Loretta for a number of years and she is one of the most confident people that I know I really admire her honesty her directness and I was so pleased when she released her first book in 2022 talking to children about race because she is able to just challenge and guide in a way that is so grace-filled and helpful um and through this book, I have learned so much personally, and I'm glad that other parents can also learn so much from this book too. But not only has she had an incredible career and is a, an amazing activist, really, she has also raised her son as a single parent, which isn't something that we get to hear much about very often, especially in Christian spaces. So Today, we have so much ground to cover, so I'm not going to keep on talking. I'm not going to keep doing my introduction. I'm going to get straight into the episode. Let's go. So welcome, Loretta. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having this chat. It's really important. Oh, no. Thank you so much for being on here. I actually remember listening to you on Premier Radio when I was younger. <laughs> Don't make me sound old, Emma. Well, no. <laughs> when I was younger. <laughs> younger, like two years ago. <laughs> I'm joking. Um, but no, we have a lot to talk about today because you do a lot of things. Um, so shall we just get straight into mum life? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so should we go all the way back to the beginning? And do you want to just... Tell us a bit about what it was like for you when you became a mum, was it 14 years ago? Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. So it was really daunting because I was the first out of my friendship circle to have a child. So I didn't have like any other friends to sort of go, oh, what's this like? And as everyone knows who's listening to this or anywhere in the world who's had a baby there's so much stuff that no one tells you like even though you think you know and I was also one of these people who I can be well I like to say I'm a realist not cynic depends who you ask but I did not expect oh, oh you know little dolly you get to dress up and all of that I was expecting it to be hard but there are so many things little things that I'm like why don't people tell you this stuff and then I was like the reason they don't tell you is because the human race would stop. <laughs> if we That's knew true. what it was really like, we'd never agree to it. So it was really daunting. I was really, I felt so many deep feelings that I didn't expect. When I was pregnant, I remember really thinking, feeling the responsibility, the weight of the resp- like, what am I going to teach this child about the world? And and how do I pass on my faith so that I they know what I feel, but it's not forced on them and they feel they have choice. And, and all these things that I didn't think, that I thought I had years to think about, 
were really in the forefront of my mind when I was pregnant. You feel this weight of responsibility of not wanting to mess up this kid. And I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to book its therapy in for when it turns 30 because I'm (laughs) going to mess this up. (laughs) At the same time, it sounds really weird, but I really expected to have postnatal depression because I'd had a bit of a history of depression. And also I just thought of all of the hard bits, um, which in some ways prepared me. But this sounds really weird, but I forgot that there would be good bits as well. So when he was born, when he literally came out, I had I was meant to be having a home birth and at the last minute I had to end up going in. But when uh, and it was I was pushing for four hours, which you're not meant to do, but I was okay. pushing for four hours. Exhausting. Very exhausting. And when he came out, um, he came out silent and literally turned his head and just looked at me. And I felt this rush of love towards this little thing. And I did not expect, I thought it was going to be one of these people who's going to really work, have to work hard at bonding. Because I didn't, I've never see myself as maternal or I'm not, I didn't think, I still don't think I'm a natural mum. I think I just gave birth to a child and I've had to learn it. But I, th- that rush of love, I was like, what is this? I'd never felt a love like it. And um, yeah, from there on in, I felt like I was making it up as I went along. But we kind of did our own little adventure together and you get a lot wrong and then some of it you get right, don't you? By accident. Yeah. (laughs) I remember after giving birth, the week after, walking down the road and seeing various mums with pushchairs and I wanted to run up to them and high five them having known what they'd been through and I just wanted Scott to go you're amazing you are high five and like what you've, you've given birth and it's just yeah. the, you feel so proud of yourself of what your body's capable and what your mind is capable of and um yeah there's nothing prepared me for that feeling Oh, and one part of your story is that you raised Rue as a single mother was that from the moment that he was born was it from pregnancy or was it as he kind of was a young child so as he was a young child so it was never the plan um so I was married and um into uh, it was very early on I think it was not long after Rue's first birthday actually um that we split up so my whole and also I'd been married for quite a number of years and ironically um I'd put off having a baby um I I was never one of these people like I said earlier who felt really broody and definitely knew they wanted to have kids but it also wasn't a definite no for me but um my son's father absolutely was sure he wanted children and I kept putting deadlines on it and then that would come and then I'd be like let's give it another year (laughs) and then basically I ran out of excuses and I realized I wasn't going to ever feel ready some people really do so I was like this is just something I'm going to have to do and I had a lot of fear over whether I could be a good mum and funny enough two of my biggest fears were well one of my biggest fears was that I would be a single parent because I was raised in a single parent family as well so basically in in term it wasn't the plan at all Mm -hmm. um but life happens um in the way that we don't expect it to or want it to so so when it did happen and when he was so young I remember just thinking this isn't how it was meant to be and I definitely had to go through a grieving process of what I thought that was going to look like to then the reality of what it was so in some ways I think it helped me having had my mum raise us as a single parent because I knew that I could do it but also I'd seen all of the hard bits close up as well And also my dream was to kind of redeem my past, especially now being a Christian. And I wanted to know what that felt like. Um, And unfortunately, that wasn't our case. But instead, I was just like, how do I make this? This is my situation. It's not the ideal. And I still believe that the the best scenario for a child is to have a mum and a dad active in their lives and in the same home and bring them up. But if that's not your situation, then you make the best of what you've got. So then I was like, right, how do we do this to the best that we can? Um, Rather than looking at what was absent, I looked at what I could bring. Um, And luckily I had very supportive friends um, and role models. And my son does have a good relationship with his dad now as well. So he does see his dad. Um, But yeah, it was was really difficult at first to grieve what I thought that experience was going to be like and catch up with my reality. And... um, it's hard because when I look back, those first two years of my son's life, I um, there's a part of me that wishes I could go back because I didn't 
take it in because I had so much else going on at the time, um, you know, with my marriage falling apart and that kind of thing. And you don't get that back, you know, at the same time, those, you know, an, a night can feel like years, can't it? You know, when they're not sleeping and all of that. Um, but at the same time, it's so precious that time and you never get it back again. And I would love to have, have been able to go back. But at the same time, I think in parenthood, the whole time you're making mistakes and we can always say, could we go back? Um, and someone once told me it's not a, it's not even about being a great parent. It's about being good enough. Yeah. And when they said that, that really made me like, yeah, I think I'm just about good enough. Probably not great, but good enough. And and when I look at my son and he's pretty well-rounded and, and brilliant, in my opinion, um, then, you know, I think, OK, I mean, I still keep the therapy booked in for 30, but still. <laughs> <laughs> so you were obviously going through like a massive life shift whilst being kind of so close to that stage of just having had a child even though he was like one or two at the time how did you manage to kind of I don't know it's just so much to process mentally so how were you able to push through some of those harder days because I'm sure there would have been days that maybe felt amazing and lovely but then there were probably days that were really tough yeah well I'm going to be really honest because I know that that's what that what you would want but um there were there was a time when I really found it difficult to even start the day. Mm. And to be honest, if it wasn't for my son and that I had a baby crying in the next room, then I probably wouldn't have got out of bed. And I remember being very sceptical about antidepressants. Um, but I went to a, the doctor and I said, like really seriously, just said to them, you need to give me something to, to get through the day each day I was and and they were just like oh we need to ask the questions I'm like I don't care what you give me I need to be able to get up each day for this little person mm. and I remember really thinking that I wasn't even thinking about oh I want to feel well I was like how do I get through the day because at the time I had like four different forms of childcare, and I was working and just just literally the logistics of a day were so hard so um, and I'd never considered antidepressants before um, so I took them for nine months and I have to say they didn't, um, in my opinion, and I know there's a lot of, um, whether there's a lot of research now that even says whether they work and whether it was placebo for me to go, I'm, I'm doing something that makes me feel like I've got a grip, but it just felt like I just got my fingers back on the ledge again. Cause it definitely felt like I was losing it a bit and it, it kind of took the edge of my emotions both sides. So I didn't get as low and desperate but also it definitely curbed my emotions on on the upside so in that nine months that I was on them when I look back now it's very much a blur like my my son also always always got up really early so he was a fairly good sleeper like he'd go down but I'm talking half four five and people said to me when he gets to nursery it will tire him out he'll you know sleep in nope when he starts school don't worry at school do you know the first time he slept in past half past five he was eight years old no <laughs> eight years old so he's like tried to kill me with sleep you know oh and this is my background of being a musician where before I had a child sometimes I wouldn't know before noon so he completely that changed around so I mean there was one time when my life was you know getting up at five half five or whatever you know before CBeebies even started so it's just that thing that rolls yeah honestly <laughs> So we would regularly watch that for at least 40 minutes. Um, and then I'd get him off to nursery and I was on a breakfast shift for at Premier Radio. So I'd get there super early and then I'd finish at like half two. I'd come back, pick him up from nursery. There'd be that whole, you know, that witching hour when they're crazy. And then you feed them, put them in bed. And then I would go to bed half an hour after him. Yeah. And that cycle was my life for at least nine months I didn't see anyone. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't listen to music. I didn't listen to podcasts, all the stuff that I love. And then I felt like I'd got a little bit more of a grip. So I came off the antidepressants and whether it was coming off that or whether it was more that I just was already starting to feel better, I don't know. But I remember one day going, I want to listen to some music. And I put me and anyone who knows me, music's a massive part of my life and who I am. And I put some music on and then I went in my garden 
And I remember almost, it sounds really dramatic, but like seeing colours for the first time. And I felt like life came flooding back to me. And that was the first time. And I, and I, I looked at Rue and I was like, oh my gosh, here's my little boy. And I felt myself coming back. But I'm sad when I look at that nine months because it's a blur and I it was literally getting through the day um but you have to do what you have to do I can't go back and I can't change that and the point is that's what helped me to cope at the time um and sometimes we can just only do what we can you know take the next hour or the next day and that's what I had to do for a while Exactly. And you were um, in church at the time, like you're a Christian, go like through, I'm not sure if you were attending church through those kind of crazy nine months of just getting by, but were there things through your faith that helped you in that time or was it just quite difficult across the board because church communities aren't always set up to cater to single parent families? Like what, how, how was that for you being a part of a church as a single parent? So a bit of both. Um, Some things, my faith definitely helped me, my my faith and my friends who were Christians, they, that I could be really real with about what was going on. And one friend in particular, very early on when my marriage had just sort of broken down, gave me this verse in Isaiah um, that I still go back to now that basically says, um, I wish I could remember exactly where it is. I think it's Isaiah 63, but it it says um, your God will be your husband and he will raise your sons with you. And I used to pray that over Rue, that in the absence of whatever was not there, that God would raise Rue with me. And I felt that so many times, like not to make it all too long, but like even when I was applying for his primary school, and that's a crazy story of how that came about. And in the end, last minute, we got into a Church of English school and I felt like he did that with me. And there's been so many things where I was like, I wish I had another person to talk this through with. And I felt like God stepped in then. So my faith really helped me um, a lot. What was was really hard was church life just doesn't fit with being a single parent at all. And I was really surprised at that. Um, so I started going regularly to a church when he was around two and at that time when I was feeling really lonely anyway and um, I knew like a couple of people there and it was a very family church Um, but unfortunately it was so family as in 2.4 children and you know the husband and wife that I felt very othered and also um, I was almost too old to be a part of the sort of the younger people uh, who hadn't had kids but almost too young to be a part of the parents where not to be rude, but it felt like all they wanted to do was talk about their kids. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I want to speak to an adult. I spend my time on my own a lot with my child watching CBeebies and playing trains. I I want some adult conversation. And I think sometimes there's that, and that's not just in the church, that's anywhere they assume that your world's your kids. And it is, but I at the time really struggled with, and a lot of women weren't honest about the identity crisis you have in becoming a mum, as in Mm -hmm. who am I as a woman? Who am I as Loretta? I know, am I only a mum now? And I get that's really important, but who am I aside from that? And I was desperate for that, someone to just speak about a TV show or music or something like that. And then the other thing that was really difficult is all those small groups, like house groups. It was so difficult to attend anything. And a particular one that I did actually address with the church is that they were then running a parenting course. So they came up to me and said, oh, do you want to come to this parenting course? I was like, yes, that would be great. And then the time of it was the start time was 7 p.m. And I was like, surely that's a terrible start time for any parent, let alone a single parent. And they're like, oh, well, generally one will come one week and the other one will come the other week or one will do the bedtime and then come and join. And I was like, well, what would I do? And I remember this lady going, oh, I didn't think about that. And I was like, I'd have to get a I'd have to get a sitter. But also generally when they're that young, you want to put them in bed. So it's only a sitter once they're in bed. So there's no way I'm going to be able to get there. It's also going to cost me to come. And I haven't got somebody who can come in my place that I can alternate with. So there was that. And it was just the fact that when I raised it, they were like, oh, not thought about that. And then things like the service, you know, when your kid's kicking off and then which is most weeks at certain age. And then you end up in the creche every week and you're missing the service the whole time and things like that. It might be nice to even 
buddy you up with another single parent so one could go in and one could stay out or, or not even a single parent a family says well I'm in there anyway this week why don't you go and enjoy the service also afterwards when I would try in the after bit to like try and meet people your kid's desperate to eat then so I used to end up having coming late because I was so disorganized because of having to get there and get out the door and then having to leave as soon as it finished so I actually attended that church for four years and barely met anyone because Mm -hmm. practically and I'm sure a lot of people didn't even know that I was having that struggle at the back you know I'd have so many toys around me trying to listen and I just remember sitting there feeling so alone surrounded by all these people but feeling really depressed and really alone and like why am I even coming Um, and my kid would hate it I would hate it and the whole experience was just really stressful so even though I sort of stuck it out for a number of years I I just stopped going in the end because it just it just didn't work for me so the practicalities of it um, just didn't help at all yeah it's kind of like you almost needed somebody in the church who could see that and say to you like oh hey Laura I really want to catch up with you is there a good time for me to come over while your kid is playing and I'll come and have a cup of tea with you or something so you know you're getting that somebody's seeing you and trying to kind of come into your space in what you need rather than constantly always having to adapt yourself to all the other environments because you're doing that everywhere anyway when you're a single parent so to have to do that in church as well it's it's not right yeah, and I think, and even just, I, I think, say this about so many issues, just ask. Yeah. So rather than assume and say to someone, what would really help you right now? What would make things easier? And it's something like someone going, one ice, because I'd often sit up in the balcony. I tell you what, I'll come and sit up with my kids as well and they can play and then at least one of us if you know one's swallowing something they shouldn't see because you've got to have your eyes in two places so just that coming to sit with you would would be like really helpful is there anything that ever happened in church that you were like that's great so there was a um I think after it was flagged up by some parents saying how like evening like cell groups or home groups that you know small groups were difficult for any parents to attend and sometimes you know couples want to go together as well um then there was one that the church that I was going to started that would be on a Sunday after the service and you'd like have a bring and share lunch and then do it and there'd be like um they'd do a question it would actually be in church so that was quite a good way of adapting it I think for me personally it just again I was the only single parent um I just found and as much as the timing was great for a small group because it was a lot of families all the themes were about kid things you said earlier that when you kind of look back on the time of Rue in those early years that you feel like it was a bit of a blur and you kind of wish you could go back in some ways and redo it a little bit or I don't know your mind be in a different place now that Rue is 14 do you look back over a specific period of his life that you're like that was golden like I love that or maybe right now I don't know Mm. so that's a really good question because it's so weird when you're doing it for the first time because you you just crack one phase and then they go into a new phase or something new and you're like okay this is a different rodeo um I really enjoyed just before he started school when he was just like that sort of toddler age because he was he was very shy he started talking really really young um and actually before he started school uh, I was still struggling quite a bit so before the summer before he started school so he just turned four and he was due to start school school in the September um we went traveling just on our own just me and him went backpacking around Europe wow so it was, um, I literally had a backpack and a tent on my back. I'd booked the first bit. It was going to be like three months. In the end, it was two months. And we did like France, Spain, Italy. And partly I did it because I wanted, I believe in every now and then, if you get too complacent, do something to scare yourself, just to remind yourself you're alive. And I just wanted to snap out of just this sort of routine. And partly I wanted us to have an experience together as well before he got into the routine of school. When I look back now, I'm like, what were you thinking? Like, I'm more scared now when I, and we, there were some scary moments that I will never talk of, but there was also some really amazing things that we did. And I just think, oh, what a great thing that we experienced together. 
Um, and that period, he was so cool. He was, you know, um, old enough that he could take it all in. And he was very adaptable anyway. And he was just like my little buddy. So it was like, you know, we met so many people that either thought it was really cool or thought I was literally nuts that I was traveling <laughs> with a four-year-old sleeping in a tent outside all over Europe. Um, but that time was really special. But I always say, um, I, because I have been asked this question before, I always say, oh, the phase I'm in is my favorite. Like at the minute, I was terrified of the teenage years. And I know I keep waiting for it to get worse and it probably will. But at the same time, it sort of annoyed me that everyone was like, oh, brace yourself, the teenage, you know, you're, you're going to hate you and this, that and the other. And I don't know whether it's because we've had a lot of time, just the two of us, but we're really close. And I've always talked to him about everything. I have a policy that whatever question he asks, he's ready to hear the answer. Obviously age appropriate, but if he asks anything, I don't dodge a question. Admittedly, sometimes I've had questions like, really? I thought I had another three years before I'd have yeah. that question. And then I was like, okay, let's get a book on that then. Um, so there's definitely been a few of those moments. But I think because of that, we're really close now. And he is just sort of turning into this man, this young man before my eyes. So I'm actually really surprisingly enjoying him at the moment like my favorite analogy of parenthood that someone gave me is the young years it's like you're baking a cake and you put in all the ingredients and you do it to the best of your ability and you put all the stuff in and then you put it in the oven and the teenage years are oh, you have to step back and let it cook and you're so desperate to open the oven and you know, pester, you know, but if you do that, you will spoil the cake. You have to trust <laughs> that you've put in the ingredients and it's now going to do its thing. And I feel like I'm in that in the oven bit now. And I've just got to trust that the stuff that I've poured into him and my friends and my wider village that's helped me to bring him up, that it's all going to pay off. And, um, yeah, I am peeking through the window blatantly going, is it rising all right? But I'm resisting opening the door and just letting him make his own mistakes at the moment. And it's it's hard to do that. Um, but I love that. And hopefully, yeah, the cake's going to turn out all right. <laughs> oh, the cake is already looking golden and beautiful. <laughs> you did a great job. Um, so slightly changing the subject, now more focusing on to you and what you're doing. Um, I mentioned in my introduction that you've had a pretty big career. You've worked across a number of different industries. Um, but something that I think is fairly new to you, you haven't written a book before, have you? This was your first book. I had actually written a book before, years and years ago, but not a very good book. Like when I was working with uh, schools work as a like schools evangelist, then I wrote a book oh. for new teenagers who came to faith. But it's more of a booklet, really. But this is my first okay. proper book. Okay, we're going to say this is your debut proper yes. book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so that was it. You became an author maybe for the second time then, in 2022 um, with a book that you co-wrote with your friend, Ruth Hill. Um, and it's called Talking to Children About Race, Your Guide for Race Raising Anti-Racist Kids. Yeah? Yeah. Big title. Um, <laughs> the title is pretty telling, to be fair. But do you want to, in your own words, just give anybody that doesn't know what this book is about um, a little breakdown of what it is and what they could expect from this kind of book? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I didn't want to write a book. I've got a fairly full plate in my life anyway. Yep. How the book came about. So Ruth, my friend Ruth, we met while we were pregnant. So we met at our like um, prenatal classes. Antinatal. Antinatal. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. yeah. I don't know I always, what it's called. Because yeah. anti sounds after, doesn't it? Bernie? Yeah, antinatal. Um, yeah. I think it is antenatal. Well, we met there anyway. And um, our children were born um, a week apart. Um, and we became very good friends. And at the time, we used to run a blog when our children were very small called More Than a Mum, because she was one of the first people that was really honest about this whole sort of identity crisis you have. Actually, she moved out of London, but we kind of kept in touch. Um, and around 2020, as a lot of people know, in the wake of George Floyd's death, then a lot of people became a lot more aware that, oh, racism hasn't gone away and it's still there, which anyone who's black and brown or has someone who's black and brown in their life, hopefully was still aware of that. But it, it was an opportunity to talk about it. And I had some really great conversations and I had some really awful conversations around that time, like quite shocking, actually. Um, but one of the really good ones I had was with Ruth. And she basically messaged me and said, I'm so challenged by 
all of this stuff. I want to do better, um, particularly with my kids. Um, and she came to me and she said, Look, I don't want to be one of these people that asks you to do the learning for me. I want to do my own learning. Could you point me in the direction of any books on this that you might be aware of? And also, if this is not appropriate to ask, please let me know. So I was mainly so impressed by how she asked me. She checked that I had the mental capacity to help in that way. She was going to do her own learning. And I was like, thank you so much for how you've approached this and that you just want to do better in this area. I said, I actually don't. I've done a quick Google search and I can't find anything on it. And she's like, yeah, same here. And she's like, oh, you should write one. And I was like, you should write one because she (laughs) also her background is in education. She's got a master's in education. She's a teacher. So anyway, she was like, no, it wouldn't be my place to do it. So anyway, because of how she'd asked, I thought it was so good. And I'd had so many really poor conversations about it that with her permission, I asked her if I could copy and paste our conversation to my Facebook status. And I said, do you know what? I'm going to block out about the book because that's such a good idea. You should so do it. And really that the whole idea behind the book was it was aimed at people like Ruth, to be honest, who somebody who's an out and out racist is not going to pick up a book with that title. But there are so many people who are like, I really want to do better in this, but I just don't know how to. And the main thing we wanted it to feel like was like a really friendly arm around someone's shoulder, guiding them through this. So not shaming anyone, not telling anyone they're wrong. My biggest bugbear is people who are so afraid of getting it wrong that they then don't have the conversation at all. Yeah. And we just wanted to encourage people to ask the questions. Kids are actually so good at this stuff. It's just like so. And also we both made mistakes. So in the book, we talked about the things we'd got wrong, but the things that had gone well. And then the whole aim was just to help parents who are like, I'm afraid of this subject, but I don't want to ignore it. How can I even start it? So that's how it came about. There's so much like I know from my experience as a white person that there is so much I don't know, simply because of the way that I move through the world. I'm just not going to encounter the same kind of world that my children are going to encounter or that my husband has encountered. And um I think as I as I read books like yours and others as well I realize how many gaps there are in my knowledge and it doesn't feel condemning at all and I think that is exactly right in your book that it does feel like just an arm around the shoulder um because it it feels like yeah you're just being taught and your eyes are being opened and then that just makes me want even more for every white parent ever to read it because I'm like oh my gosh this is this could actually transform a generation because if everybody was exposed to this kind of education and to understanding these conversations the generation that we're raising would have such a better understanding and you actually could raise anti-racist children now could you just um help define the distinction between anti-racist and not racist because I feel like sometimes people see the word anti-racist and they're like yeah I'm not racist so it's fine and it's like that's kind of not the point yeah yeah I'm so glad you asked that also particularly in a Christian context what I experienced so my friend Ruth isn't a Christian um and I am but we um we we tackled both scenarios so I I I put in like a, a section all about it from the Christian perspective as well but what I found in interviews we've had since the book's out and even before we were going to a festival where the book was going to be on sale, someone phoned me because what they were most concerned, I said, oh, a bit concerned about this anti-racist term, like that's a bit political, which was crazy to me that that term has now, a bit like woke, has now turned into a political statement mm-hmm. when that's not what it means at all. And certainly in the context we were using it in the book, it's 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 not about being political. And racism is not a black problem it's a human problem it's a human issue it's for all of us to deal with it's certainly even less for black and brown people to deal with racism so like you said those blind spots are so important and how we defined an anti-racism in our book and how I, I believe it should be before it was hijacked as a political term is that um being not racist is perhaps seeing somebody being called a racist name or, or experiencing some kind of race attack looking at that seeing it and saying I would never do that that's somebody who's not racist who wouldn't do that somebody who's anti-racist might see that and they might go over there and intervene and maybe they might not necessarily want to get in trouble so you know start something with the other the person who's doing the attacking or said the word but they would at least 
go up to the person who's experienced that, check that they're okay and be an ally and being involved with that. So in very simple terms, being anti-racist is, is active. Being not racist is passive. That's brilliant. And it's, it's kind of like what you said earlier about how um, there's been times that maybe Rue has asked you a question that you weren't quite prepared for. And you're like, that came three years too early. Or I don't know, you just you weren't quite ready for it. And I think it's, it's learning about this as a parent that prepares you for those conversations. But then also your analogy of the cake, how actually anti-racism is kind of one of those educational ingredients that we can add to this mixture in raising our children and we'll see it play out in their school friendships and from like a very very young age and I think you see the inquisitive nature of children from so early on especially if you've got a very chatty child like my son Ezra um (laughs) and because they they do they notice everything don't they and they ask questions about the appearance of people around them and often they'll ask you when they're standing right in front of the person so it's like (laughs) a oh moment (laughs) as the parent and if you're not prepared for it, it it can really feel like you just want the ground to swallow you whole because you're like what do I say here this is an educational moment an opportunity and I'm not ready and this could go really wrong um so yeah, you you get put on the spot a bit as a parent, but how would you kind of approach those kinds of naturally inquisitive questions from a child that doesn't condemn them for asking the question, doesn't say like, oh, don't, don't say that, don't ask that. Um, and it kind of helps to satisfy their curiosity whilst also, if it is in front of a person, not making them feel uncomfortable whoever they're talking about whether that's somebody who's got a disability somebody who's a different race to them whatever it may be how would you approach those kinds of questions from a young child yeah no that's that's a great question and it really is on us because a child is not being racist they're not being rude they're not trying to shame someone they're simply asking a question about something in the world that has come to their attention and again they need the answer right then in front of the person yeah <laughs> so it's ours our response is really important I think even us as adults we can all remember moments as a child when we did something instantly and the reaction made us think oh, I've done something wrong and we felt shamed and we and that stays with you for a long time so how we react is really important so I think as anything whether that questions about sex about race about disability any of those things the important thing is for whether we are dying inside or not is to you know start with making them not feel that it was wrong to ask that question so I always start with something like that's a really good question if it's something that is going to be like not appropriate to speak about in public then I'll be like that's a great question shall we chat about that when we get home um, so that's what if you if you're really panicking, that's something that you could say. Okay. Um, if it's some also, though, when I've been in certain situations, I kind of want to signal to the other person that a it's OK for my child to ask this question. But also I want to kind of have your back as well. So sometimes as well, I might not answer the question in full, like I'll bring it up at home with all the things and the learning I want to bring to my child. But in that moment, I might say to them something like so. um Ruth had this actual thing when her younger child, um, her son, she went swimming. They've moved out of London to a rural place where it's all white. And they went swimming and he saw a black person for the first time in the swimming pool. So he just literally pointed and went, mummy, why is that person's face black? Okay. (laughs) So she was like, what do I say? And she was so embarrassed, but she just went that's a really good question. You've not seen somebody with that skin colour before, have you? Well, some people are born with the skin colour we've got and some people are born with that skin colour. We'll talk about it a bit more at home. So still to that person, you know, even if they felt a little bit, they'd be like, okay, that's a parent who's using that as a teaching moment and not gone, shh, shh, don't say that, don't say that. Also, her child's going to go, oh, okay, there's more to know about this. And also, I just haven't seen that before. That's why I've said that. So I think it's um, about responding in the moment so your child doesn't feel shamed, thinking about how you, even if you don't want to go really go into it, I think it's really important to try and make the other person feel comfortable as well. Like I am going to address this with my kids. They don't have to feel like they have to. 
but also just know as well you don't have to put the pressure on yourself to answer it all in that moment even if you go let's talk about it at home and actually on the bus on the way home you're googling how do I tell my kid about this or you're on Amazon ordering a book (laughs) yeah basically um so yeah I think there's space to get things wrong but what would be wrong is to not address it to shush your child to say we don't say that or we don't talk about that um um I think if your child's being rude to someone like calls them a name that's something you would have to tell them off about that's unkind that makes that person feel uncomfortable makes that person feel sad we'll talk about this at home but if they're just asking a question let them know it's a great question let's talk about it one of my favorite activities is particularly if you've watched either a children's program or sometimes the news and it doesn't have to be adult news because obviously a lot of us don't want our children to watch that but if it's news round or something that's child appropriate where there will be the things that are actually going on in the world and maybe afterwards just saying what did you think about that or did you notice how many black and brown faces were in in that cartoon we just watched how what did it make you think about that that person or and just basically just really normalizing seeing people of different colors different races different types and and having conversations about that so not waiting till it's a big issue like something like George Floyd being covered but just normalizing that um that there's things around you they they only become weird when they're obvious but we don't talk about them yeah um and again it's not an activity but one of the things that I think is really important is just going to your bookshelf having a look at your kids books and how many of them do have black and brown characters in them and I'm not just talking about the best friend or the sidekick but like the you know the protagonist yeah yeah. And, and and is it a book that's just about race or is it just a book about life and joy and the kid happens to be brown just a quick one while we're talking about resources if you haven't already got a my spring harvest account i really encourage you to sign up it is completely free you just got to put your email address in so head over to myspringharvest.org and create your free account and there you'll get access to loads of different resources and articles i've written quite a few articles myself off of the back of this podcast that are on there um that are just related to different topics that we've spoken about with guests so i will be adding one there now off the back of this conversation with with Loretta I'll detail some of those kids books that you could be reading or that you could make sure you've got on your kids shelves that have non-white protagonist characters and that they're not just books that are about race but actually just enjoyable books for young children to read so I'll put a little list there for you and I'm also going to include one of the family activities that are included in the talking to children about race book so if you're interested in kind of getting a bit of a glimpse of what they those activities are that are included in the book you can go over there and check that out now and try it out with your family so that's it head to myspringharvest.org create your free account and you'll get access to all of this good stuff back to the episode so for me obviously I've got Ezra and Hallie who are mixed race and I think one of my fears in approaching conversations with them about race about themselves um is that I don't want to make them feel self-conscious because you know when you see your child's like just amazing innocence and like carefree confidence that they just think they are amazing because they are (laughs) but then when you have to teach them about the way that the, the world might see them and things that they might encounter that you want to prepare them for um it's difficult to know how to approach it and when the right time is because you don't want to feel like you're taking anything away from them, even though that's not what you're doing, but Mm. you don't want to start putting things in their head from such a young age that are going to make them feel like, oh, are people going to look at me funny or do I look different? What's wrong with me or anything like that? And I guess you want to be able to speak about it from a very positive um, outlook, but it is something that you have to talk to them about from a space of wanting to protect your children um, and wanting the best for them and not wanting to be surprised and shocked by the world. What age would you say is the right age to start having those kinds of conversations with non-white children? With non-white children? Yeah. 
Well, it's kind of easier to answer that way, to be honest. What yeah. I realised, and and then speaking to Ruth, uh, we had so many conversations. We should have done a podcast while we were writing the book because we had yes. we really went there with conversations and we had some great conversations. But as I was talking about a lot of things, the big thing for Ruth, and she'd say this and has said this in interviews we've done, she was like, I've never had to think about that. Yeah. Like how I move through the world, that's not an issue. So the thing is, not speaking to your kids about race and racism is a luxury that white parents and white children have because they're not going to feel it. Unfortunately, for parents of black and brown children, that will probably, even if you try and have it early enough, will unfortunately come out sideways in some kind of awful way or not very nice way. And it's it's like everything, like the first time our kid comes back from nursery and says, Sarah didn't want to play with me. And we're like, oh my God, why don't you want to play with my kid? Like, where's Sarah's address? You know, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> and it, we, we hate for our kids to experience any pain. If we could, we'd have them not go through any painful experience ever. But unfortunately, that's the world. The one thing I've learned about parenthood is what it basically is, is learning to let go a bit more every single day. Mm. And every time I even say that, I'm like, oh, because I, I want to protect him from everything, but actually I'm not preparing for anything. So I know it sounds like I'm dodging the question, but it will just come up, Emma, for you. And it'll be like, even if you're like, I'm going to talk to this around four because that's school. Four's the age when kids become a bit um, more um, aware of difference. Before that, it's not that they don't see it, but it does. they don't attach any meaning to it. And suddenly, you know, even for my son, he, he had so many other things. It was coming home and go, why don't I have a daddy that lives at home? Like, that's a question that I was like, when do I bring that up? Like, yeah. so it's you apply the same things to the race question. It's just for you as, as a parent of, of brown children, you don't have the luxury of going, well, I'll, I'll wait till they're eight and we can get a book on it. It will come up much earlier through a child calling them a name or, or saying, your hair's funny. Mummy, why is my hair funny? And a little thing, and suddenly you realise you're having the conversation. So what I think is it's just about creating a home where they get to feel, and I know you already do this, um, that special, amazing person because that resilience is whatever you experience in the world we basically we can't protect them from the world yeah. racism is out there they are going to experience it but what we can do is have this safe space where they can learn resilience and we can teach resilience um by not wrapping our kids in cotton wool for all of the things you know when someone doesn't want to share with you that was really hard wasn't it did that make you feel sad and letting them experience difficult feelings unfortunately for us as parents of black and brown and mixed race children we um, have to have those conversations much sooner and this is why I wish more white parents of white children would ask themselves this because we don't get the luxury of going I'll wait till we can you know they really can understand it they've got these concepts we'll just be forced to so I don't think there's an age I think as soon as there's something that you know is racism even if your child doesn't such a small thing then you can um, address that by not saying oh you just experienced racism there but some people will look at things that are different to themselves and not be nice about it we don't think that's kind but not, but we're not like this in this family. So constantly yeah. reasserting this safe space. The, there's the world out there where some people will be like this, but we're not like this. We're not like that. That is very helpful. Thank you. So I'm going to let you go in just a second. But before I do, um, one of our previous guests was um, Gabes and Anna Deku. And I asked them if they had a question that they would want to ask um, another mother or another father or another parent. Um, and I thought you would be the per- perfect person to answer their question because you've raised a child all the way from toddler, baby toddler, child and now teen years. Um, so their question was essentially... Seeing the way that the world is now with a lot of different ideologies and opinions, we're very exposed to so many people's opinions on everything. Um, They're fearful about how their son will navigate himself through all of the different opinions without it kind of 
making it really hard for him to find his identity um, or feeling afraid to like be secure in one thing because there's always an opinion on whatever way you choose to live your life. Um, so how can they allow their son to be exposed to the world that we live in with all of the opinions, but protect him without it from it shaping his identity negatively if that makes sense I feel like I've probably really butchered that question (laughs) do you know what I'm asking (laughs) yeah yeah I think it's the question that I've mentioned at the start that I was Mm. feeling when I was pregnant um because we want we've got to remember we don't own our children we just get to guide them through life they're their own person uh, who hopefully will find their own relationship with God and we've got our own path we can sometimes tell ourselves that their path is our path and our path is theirs and it isn't they're two separate things so we're there as a guide for our children and yes that's very hands-on when they're younger but actually if you're too hands-on this is what I'm discovering in the phase I'm in that can go very wrong as well so they've got to always know that they can talk to you about anything that they can do the 3am call and go I've really messed up you want that to be you that they call not somebody else not a mate not somebody else's dad or mum because they know they'd be accepting so for me um it's been all about me accepting my son through every phase he's been through every question he's asked even if inside I'm going what the heck okay let's talk about that now then on the outside I'm like okay well how does that feel and what do you think and if you did do that or if you did choose that what and how would that make someone else feel so having an open dialogue of conversation where they feel that they're allowed to explore what they really think about something, but also being very clear in my own opinions and why I've chosen them and my own choices and being able to back that up. But I don't force my opinions on him. I say why I do and why I think something might be a wrong decision or a wrong choice. I also give him the freedom to make his own choices. But I also say, if you do that, this is probably going to end in that way. But he's at the end of the day, we can't control them. Certainly when they're they're teenagers, they are going to do that. What I want him to know is that I've put the ingredients in. And hopefully when I'm not around, it's all very well getting them to behave and act and say the right things when you're there. What our job as parents is, is so when we're not, when they're at university, when they're at youth group, when they're with their mates, are they have they got the tools to make the right decision then? Have they got that inner confidence that they've been allowed to explore what they think and land on where they feel and that they've it's not wrong to even contemplate that thought or that lifestyle or that choice I don't know if I answered that and I don't know if that's the right answer but that's what I'm doing (laughs) no you did thank you so much honestly I feel like you are such a fountain of wisdom you are genuinely one of the most honest people that I know and so I'm glad that you have been able to kind of walk this path before many of us and look back now and be like it's okay here's some here's some wisdom (laughs) (laughs) so thank you so much for yeah all of your answers and just such a great conversation I really hope that people enjoyed it and that it's helped them with many questions that I'm sure they've got um so yeah thank you Loretta we appreciate you thanks Emma and thank you so much for having this conversation there's not many people that do so it's a real privilege to talk about it so thank you Thank you so much for listening to Another Mother. Don't forget to subscribe for future episodes and we would absolutely love your help in spreading the word about this podcast. So please do share it with your friends, share it with other parents, other mums that you may know, mums-to-be, parents-to-be, just anybody that you think might enjoy it. Thank you.